Is the state of immigration policy in peril? And when is it appropriate to use the term terrorist? From the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, Bassam On. Today we're talking with Arsalan Iftikhar, an international human rights lawyer, founder of TheMuslimGuy.com, and a regular contributor to the NPR show The Barbershop, about the current state of immigration policy in the U.S. and how it affects minorities. Thanks for being with us today, Mr. Iftikhar. Thank you for having me. With the presidential election on the horizon, issues like immigration and ubiquitous racial profiling are quickly becoming a vital topic for both candidates. How would you interpret the state of current immigration policies in the United States and what, in your opinion, could be done to improve them? What, what should candidates focus on to help get that brown vote, so to say? Well, I think that what's important to keep in mind is that our current immigration policy here in the United States is at a crossroads. I mean, at a time where you know many demographic studies show that um, we'll have a non-white majority population in the United States within the next 30 or 40 years. Uh, it's, I think it's of paramount importance that we come up with an immigration system that is not only welcoming to people of all different backgrounds, but is also consistent with American constitution and constitutional and legal principles. Having said that, uh, I think that, you know, sadly, many of these immigration debates, you know, have taken on far too much of a political tone, whereas many minority demographic groups in America today might feel like political footballs uh, that can be bandied about by different presidential candidates, you know, as we saw with the Republican presidential primaries. And so I think what's most important is that we be able to separate the fact from the fiction in terms of any sort of policy debate, that we are able to separate the rhetoric from the actual substance. And so I think that, again, minority communities can play a vital and integral role in helping to further that conversation in a manner which is consistent with American constitutional and legal principles, but also, again, is consistent with all the laws that our nation has founded itself upon. On your website, in a piece titled Islamic Pacifism Defined, you mentioned that our human, and I quote this, our human race has completely and utterly lost its collective mind. Could you please elaborate on that statement with a particular focus on what effect this statement could have for minority men in the United States? Well, I think that, I mean, if you look at any portion of the world, there's genocide, there's wars, there's racism that has, you know, essentially gone unabated in many parts of this world. And, you know, for many people, there there seems to be some sort of civilizational clash between the East and the West. And so I think that we've lost, as a human race, we've lost this this culture of humanity, you know, where where the value of human life is is sacrosanct. I mean, now when we hear about a war or a natural disaster that happens that kills hundreds of thousands of people, you know, we're completely desensitized to that. You know, it's it's almost as though it's just a statistic, a, you know, a, a tally mark. And, and so I think that we as a human race have an obligation to, again, reinstill this culture of humanity where we can appreciate the sanctity of life anywhere around the world that, you know, a white life is not considered more valuable than a black life, that Christian life is not more valuable than a non-Christian life, that that we all as a human race understand that all six plus billion people that are on the face of the earth today, 
you know, have certain inalienable human rights and that those rights should be honored by people all around the world, especially by those people who are given more luxuries in life than the, the rest of humanity. So just to follow up on that, what role do you think the collective mind, should it actually, you know, come back, in your perspective, come back? What role do you think it's going to play on immigration policy in the U.S.? How do you think it will actually aid immigration policy if we can all think collectively? I think, you know, again, it's, it's that sort of collective American ethos of empathy. Again, you know, we remember that America is founded as a nation of immigrants. Unless you're a Navajo or Apache or Sioux, you, your family uh, has been an immigrant to this nation. And, and that's what has made our nation the, the great country that it is today. And to sort of remind ourselves that, you know, at one point or another, our forefathers and foremothers came to this country to seek a better life for their families and for their future generations. And that is what all people who come to this country are looking for. You know, people are not coming here to steal jobs or to run people out of town. We are all here for the same reason. We are all here to live better lives, to contribute to this society and this country that we find to be great. And so again, getting that collective sense of empathy and understanding that at, this, at some point or another we all originated you know, as immigrants to this nation, I think will do a lot to move the discourse forward in a positive direction. Going back to the topic of the immigration practices here, you mentioned that it recently, in recent conversations, you mentioned the browning of America. Mm-hmm. How do you think that's going to shape the elections coming up? Because obviously when you talk about the browning of America, terms that come up are the DREAM Act, several of these different policies that are coming onto the stage. How do you think that's going to shape the upcoming elections in November? Well, I think that's the million-dollar question. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that what we can understand is even though we've you know, elected an African-American to be our 44th president of the United States, that we do not yet currently live in a post-racial America. And I think that that's the million-dollar question in terms of are we going to let our better angels prevail in terms of understanding the demographic trends where we're going to become less of a homogenized society and more of a multi-ethnic and, and multiracial, multicultural society, I think will really be a testament to what kind of country and legacy we leave for our grandchildren and their grandchildren. And so again, you know, understanding that we're all Americans here, that we're all here for the same reasons, I think will help to lend that sense of empathy and I think that that will move us in the right direction. But I think that we're probably going to see a few bumps in the road before we get to uh, more greener pastures. What kind of bumps do you think? Well, I mean, again, you know, again, there's going to be overt racism, there's going to be institutional racism, there's going to be, you know, I mean, we've seen race baiting in the presidential election before Barack Obama was elected president. So obviously people are going to try to pander to the lowest common denominator in our human nature. And again, I think it's important for us to call out for the better angels of American society and and people's highest common denominator in terms of understanding each other and realizing that we, again, are all in the same boat and we are all trying to make this country a better place to live for all. Coming off of that, uh, in several of your interviews, you mentioned that in the post-9-11 world, there has emerged a double standard of sorts with the use of the word, quote-unquote, terrorist Mm -hmm. by the media. 
In your opinion, has awareness of this double standard helped society gradually move away from abusing the term? And when I say society, I also mean government institutions could be included as right. well, and just the community as a whole. Is it still as bad as it was right after 9-11? It might not be as bad as it was immediately after 9-11, but it's still pretty bad. I mean, sadly, since um, 9-11, we've seen the term terrorism co-opted to only apply to acts of violence committed by brown Muslim Arab men, and when the same acts are perpetrated by somebody with blonde hair or blue eyes, and then a European or American sounding name, they're just seen as an outlier, as a nut, as a loon. perfect example of that is recently uh, in Oslo, Norway, when you know a, a white Christian terrorist named Anders Bering Breivik slaughtered 77 people in cold blood in an act of terrorism. It's funny because in all the media coverage, you, you see him and refer to as a Norway gunman and you know things like that. Um, if it was a brown Muslim man who had done it, he'd be referred to as a terrorist in every single media article. People tend to also forget that before 9-11, the greatest terrorist attack to occur on American soil was in April 1995 when a white man named Timothy McVeigh blew up the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 167 people. We didn't go out and racially profile every blonde-haired white guy with a bus cut after that, but somehow after 9-11 we saw calls for racial profiling against Muslim and Arab men based on nothing more than their name or their religious affiliation. So, you know, again, we're not, we're not in a post-racial America yet, and uh, we're not certainly not in a post-racial world. And so, again, the, the important thing is to continue to move the conversation forward in a productive manner to point out inaccuracies and inconsistencies when we see them and again stand up for justice wherever wherever it occurs and, and call out injustice wherever we see it as well. For all of those tasks, as a final question, how do you think policymakers can play a role in that? Well, obviously policymakers play a role in the sense that they set policy for our nation, both at the national level and at the state and local levels as well. The problem is that when there is a great deal of misinformation or ignorance at the grassroots level, at their constituency level, they will tend to pander to that ignorance and vote accordingly. And so, you know, if, if the vast majority of un, uh, unelected leaders, constituents believe that, you know, there should be no pathway to citizenship for people, undocumented people who are here in the U.S., then chances are they won't vote in, in that way. And so, you know, people, uh, elected leaders need to understand that not only are they there representing their constituencies, but they're there to represent the best interests of America and what they deem to be the best interests of America. And so, you know, hopefully, again, people will, you know, find their better angels within themselves and vote accordingly for the betterment of humanity, even if it at times results in them not getting reelected. Mr. Iftikhar, it's been a privilege speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. My today. pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast is produced and edited by Gunnar Hamlin. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes, or email us at media at chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.